Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring somebody in who knows a lot about Morgan Stanley and can deconstruct a little bit what's going on with the big banks right now, and that is Chris Whalen. Chris, thrilled to have you and... uh, you heard what some of Mr. Puzan said. You know, obviously there's going to be a good face put forward, but what are the problems that you see being stored up in the banks for down the road when some of all of this gets sorted out? Well, for Morgan Stanley, you know, it's a great quarter, Vani, and I think they are one of the few franchises this quarter that are reporting up revenues across the board. Um, as uh, John was just saying, he doesn't have a lot of credit risk. And interestingly, he didn't talk about it, but one of his great strengths is that bank holding company doesn't have to go out into the market and raise net funds. They have such a big deposit base now that they are actually a net provider of funds uh, among banks. So totally different from Goldman Sachs, which has a very high dependence on the money markets to fund themselves. So asset management, the strong investment bank, plus they have liquidity in the background, which is great. Is that part of the reason why they bought Eaton Vance, though, Chris? Is that to make sure that that stays the case? Well, Eaton Vance gives you two things, Bonnie. It gives you the AUM, assets under management, which generates fees. That's a very stable leg for the stool. You know, think about it. He has cash. He has the asset management business, which pays you every quarter. And then he has the investment bank, which can fluctuate, right? So, They get the assets under management, but with that AUM comes deposits from those high net worth customers. And remember, Morgan Stanley's got a very broad wealth management business. They don't just have very rich people. They have all sorts of people, different from Goldman. You know, a trillion in AUM at Goldman and over a trillion now in AUM at Morgan Stanley are two different businesses, very different profile. The bank that had always been the bank of, you know, the, the, the vault, if you like, the fortress balance sheet had been J.P. Morgan. Is Morgan mm-hmm. Stanley sort of giving them a run for their money at this point? No, no, no. Jamie Dimon's got well over $2 trillion in core deposits. Morgan Stanley is a little shy of a trillion in total assets, Vonnie, and it's about 40% funded by bank deposits. So in other words, their banks inside Morgan Stanley can lend to the broker-dealer on an arm's-length basis, you know, they have to be priced like the market. Um, but that's a huge advantage. It's huge. Now, Jamie Dimon is like a country. He has so much going on inside of his bank. Oftentimes, the payments don't leave the bank. It just goes from one customer to another. So he's an island of liquidity, like all of the top four. But Goldman and Morgan Stanley are more broker-dealers still than they are bank. That's the key thing to remember. So we'll get to Wells Fargo maybe at the end because it's a slightly separate case. But what about Goldman Sachs this year? Is Goldman feeling a little bit of pressure even though they also had, you know, a great quarter? Oh, of course. You know, it's great to see them hit one out of the park like this. But they are the last dinosaur in the line. You know, if you ever watch Animal Planet, the one at the end is the one the T-Rex eats. So in terms of funding, in terms of volatility of the business, I think Goldman is still very vulnerable as is City. Those are the two at the back. The rest of the group is, is doing better. And I think, you know, God bless Jim Gorman. He had a lot of people criticizing him, but he's ended up creating a business that kind of looks like the UBSs and the other big European asset managers, but he's got a world-class investment bank. 
So it's a much more balanced model, I think, than a lot of his competitors. So talk to us then about City. It's been a decade at this point, Chris. And I know. It looks like it's going to have to need some kind of, I don't know, more, uh, if not restructuring, massaging. There's going to be a new CEO to try and do this. She was present the last time there was a restructuring, so she knows exactly what's going on inside the bad bank and the big good bank and, and the units oh, yeah. that have spun off and so on. What would your prescription for City be? Well, City suffers from the age of Sandy Weil. You know, uh, Mike Corbett um, has done a great job of turning things around, but he was the first competent CEO that bank had had in 15 years. And again, Jane Fraser, great operator. She's touched all the relevant parts of the bank. And I think she's got to just try and work with her board to fashion a business that makes sense. You know, they're not really much of a U.S. bank. They only have about 40% core deposits inside City. The rest of it is funded like Goldman Sachs in the markets. Their cost of funds is higher. And the thing that saves them is the big consumer buck because their credit card book has, you know, a gross yield in the teens. So that makes up for a lot of sins. But she's got to figure out a way, I think, to get back or buy an asset manager um, so she can compete with the rest of these universal banks, right? They're not just monolithic commercial banks with a broker-dealer anymore, Bonnie. Everybody wants to have a trillion, trillion and a half, two trillion in AUM so they can compete with BlackRock, which is you know, much bigger than all of them. Uh, so that, to me, is the competitive landscape. She's got a decent capital markets you know, investment bank. It's not as good as Morgan Stanley. And she's got a great, great advantage in that consumer buck because it throws off a lot of income in good times. So that, to me, is a challenge with City. What do they want to be when they grow up? Yeah. Okay, Because, look, you know, we've had systems and control issues since you and I were kids, Bonnie. We've been watching this movie for 25 years. This goes back to John Reed. And when Sandy Weil started buying those non-bank businesses, that's where they got into trouble. When you started turning, you know, sales offices of Associates Corp into branches of Citibank, that was that was not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, and and so many of the places where these banks were able to make a little extra cash on the side, they just don't exist anymore, right, Chris? You know, currency trading and so on. Like, it's just become such a different kind of experience to run a bank. But tell me this, you look at the banks and the quarters that they've had. And yes, a lot of it has come from the capital markets. But you would also imagine by looking at them that the consumer is extraordinarily comfortable right now. But that's not the case. We just got more initial jobless claims that don't even reflect the problems in California. 900,000 initial jobless claims just for last week. Empire Manufacturing is is down to 10.5. We had obviously a better, you know, Philly Fed business outlook and so on. And you know, there's definitely mixed data, but how are the banks going to weather out what's obviously coming for the consumer if we don't get more stimulus? Well, it's it's kind of a tale of two countries, Bonnie. We have a lot of people who are unemployed now who may or may not have been particularly bankable. Mm. If you think of the bottom 20% of Americans, they're not big users of credit yeah. because either they don't have credit at all or their scores are quite low. And so in this bull market you've seen for mortgages, for example, other areas, even autos, autos is doing fine. Um, you know, it's the middle to the upper third of the market in a credit term. So will the banks feel that? Yes. The ones with big consumer exposure, City, Capital One, some of the others. But look at American Express. American Express is almost back up to four times book. 
Um, so, you know, you, you have to think of it in terms of the segmentation of society. And unfortunately, the lowest income Americans are the biggest losers. Uh, and then you think about the cost that we've put on top of the banks for dealing with consumer issues over the past 10 years, Kamala Harris. That's not helpful either because there's no incentive for those banks to stretch and lend. They can do good loans all day long. Well, if, they, you know. if there's anything that's a reflection of a K-shaped recovery, it's that, Chris. I mean, it's, it's really oh, yeah. something to say when you say, well, banks aren't seeing it among their consumers because their consumers oh, yeah. are fine. The ones that are suffering can't even get banked in this country and in many other countries too. Chris, I have one more on Fanny Freddie. You know, if we get a different administration or just, you know, a continuation of the same, what happens next for Fanny Freddie? Nothing. Nothing is going to happen anyway, but it's just problematic. You cannot detach these things from government support, direct sovereign credit support, and expect them to survive. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, but one thing I do want to leave you with, Fanny, is the reason the banks, especially JP, were able to pause in terms of putting aside more cash for future losses is because of the forbearance in the CARES Act. Mm. Uh, the Fed has said, well, those are not delinquent loans. Until those are considered delinquent loans, the banks don't have to put more cash aside for them. So we're, we're pausing. Can that pause be a forever pause? I mean, can Ooh, these... Well, only if we want to become Europeans. I mean, that's what they did in Europe. They used to just ignore non-performing loans. And it was a horrible, horrible mistake on the part of the Merkel government. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are. I think U.S. banks are in much better shape. They're going to clean up the mess. Fourth quarter will be taking a lot of stuff to the curb, Bunny. Chris, it's one of the more sanguine interviews that I've had with you. You seem actually quite positive, which is... Hey, I work in the mortgage business. We're going to do $4.5 trillion worth of mortgages this year. That's a higher, almost higher than 2004, which is a little scary, but at least we have part of the economy that is going to help pull us out. And housing, I think, there's accumulated demand. You have a lot of... Uh, demographic factors, younger people want to, you know, buy families, and you're going outside of the big cities, which I think is great. This is a very good point. Maybe it's karma, the mortgage industry finally getting a a little bit... Look at JP. The banks aren't buying third-party production right now, but Jamie did enough new mortgages, so he had almost no net change in the value of his servicing. I'll guarantee you his servicing book is prepaying 30% a year. Well, That's good. It's it's good given what the mortgage industry went through 10 years ago, right? And uh, yeah. some of it brought on oh, itself, we totally have to say. We can have a longer today. conversation about that some other time. And Chris, we have to let you go, but thank you so much. That is Chris Whalen, Chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Always a pleasure to speak with Chris. Let's get some more market reaction now to Sarah Ponzak, who covers all of the assets for us. She is cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg News, and she's been obviously keeping an eye on equities today because that's you know, what's really sort of moving the most to the naked eye, at least. But there's a lot going on, Sarah, in Europe and in the United States with those jobless claims. There is a lot going on, and not necessarily what you want to see to bring optimism to this market. So in the United States, jobless claims did come in at 898,000. The estimate was for 825,000. And the prior week was also revised higher to 800. 
45,000. So not only just a miss of that estimate, but also an unexpected increase in jobless claims. Now, as Chris Lowe over at FHN Financial put it, he said the ongoing decline in claims paid stretching from late April to two weeks ago is encouraging. There he is referring to those continuing claims, but then he said the increase in initial claims is disturbing. It is difficult to see it and not think the recovery is vulnerable. And that really just epitomizes where we currently stand. Yes, we have gotten through the rebound. We have gotten through that initial stage of the V-shaped recovery, if you want to call it that. However, the question is now, what is next? Especially since it looks like we may not be getting fiscal stimulus. We do see COVID cases rising, particularly you look at Europe right now, where we see record cases in particular countries like Germany, Italy, Australia, the Czech Republic. At the same time, we're hearing about restrictions in London, curfews in Paris. So not what you want to see globally when COVID cases are rising. There's fears of another wave ahead of the winter and a labor market recovery in the United States seems to be stalling. And with all that said, we still have indices not far from records. I mean, yes, we're down 1% today on the S&P 500, the Nasdaq down 1.5% and so on. But I mean, that's not even that much of a sell-off. Well, that's why it's so important to keep this all in perspective. I mean, I think about the earnings season that we are in the middle of. Sure, it is very, very, very early on. But to this point, the beat rate for U.S. companies that have reported earnings so far is about 85%. That would be a record beat rate. However, if you look at the average move for a stock that has reported earnings, in the 24 hours post-reporting, that average move has actually been about a 2% decline. So even though companies are beating, companies are delivering, it's not showing up in the stock market. And part of the reason for that is, yes, the fact that Many of these estimates, analysts had no clue what was going to happen. We had gotten no guidance. It was almost as though we were living in a vacuum, in an information vacuum. And you see that disparity between the estimates and the actual numbers that are coming out. But when you have markets that are trading at record highs, it is such a different setup than the beginning of the second quarter or first quarter earnings season, when even though we got such negative numbers, we saw an unbelievable rally in the stock market. Of all the notes that you read all day, and I know you read so many, <laughs> how many people are pessimistic, Sarah? Because of the ones I read, it really doesn't seem short of a couple of warnings here and there that people out on Wall Street sending out research are that pessimistic. I would say that my read is very similar to yours. It seems at this point in time, more and more strategists are actually highlighting breadth measures, for example, of the market, saying that this is a market that has been broadening out. Ned Davis Research, for example, had highlighted this the other day, changing their stance on U.S. equities to become a bit more optimistic, saying that one of their breadth measures had actually flagged and was now positive and pointing to the fact that we are in the early stages of a true bull market. And that does seem to be what the majority of those notes I am reading are saying, people are saying, yes, of course, there are risks out there. You have an election. You have COVID-19. You need to see what happens with the labor market, not just in the United States, but the economy around the world. However, at the same time, if you look at the internals of the market, many strategists are starting to say this is resembling a true early stage bull market. I suppose the next catalyst will be the actual election itself at this point. I mean, yes, we might get something between now and then on Brexit, although it's not likely. <laughs> we might get some better news on the virus, but we might also get some worse news. So I suppose, is that what people are focused on? 
The election coming up, especially considering the fact that 19 days away is the U.S. election, that is 13 trading sessions. So it's going to be here before we know it. It's pretty unbelievable. But I would say still top of mind, and you really can't get away from it, is just COVID-19, especially when you see headlines of what is happening in Europe uh, currently. And also when we see headlines dropping about officials or people involved uh, in the White House or campaigns testing positive as well, that brings it into it too. And it is really what's dictating our lives, businesses, and the economy at the moment. Yeah, and I'm sure everyone has seen by now, but obviously Kamala Harris has to stop traveling because aides in her front office tested positive as well. So this, this is affecting both sides. We're going to get uh, two town halls, two competing town halls tonight. We'll see if we hear anything that might change the narrative, but it doesn't feel like we will at this point. The other quick thing, Sarah, that I'm watching, and it, it harkens back to everybody buying outdoor patio furniture and heat and so on is energy prices. They might go up a little. Right. It's interesting because when you think about the COVID-19 pandemic, originally this was seen as a deflationary force. Now some are wondering if we are going to see pockets of inflation pick up. We saw that in the last CPI report with used cars, for example. There are certain pockets of the economy that may benefit. Now, we will see what happens as we start getting into the winter. Like you said, it it would be imaginable that many restaurants, uh, people maybe in their homes are trying to get heaters to use outside in particular. I have heard that there are extreme backlogs uh, to achieve these because they are in such hot demand currently. But yes, you have to think about the derivative effects. I bought some propane from a local (laughs) hardware store and they asked me why. And I I felt like saying, well, it's... It's for heating. What else is propane <laughs> used for these days? <laughs> Leave that to your imagination. Sarah Ponzak, thank you. Cross asset reporter here at Bloomberg News and General Just Genius. Carl Weinberg joins us now, founder and chief international economist of high frequency economics. Carl, let's get straight to the point. How awful is it out there? What are we going to see in terms of recession in layers or not in layers for the U.S. this year and next year, most importantly? Okay, well, uh, thank you for having me on, Bonnie. You know, we're looking at a second wave of the virus, and we've maintained that high-frequency economics, that you can't forecast the future of the economy until you know where the virus is going to go, and we don't know. Uh, There can't possibly be a real recovery until we see a cure for the virus or at least a good treatment for the virus, and none of that is at hand. As the virus spread increases, we're getting increasingly pessimistic in our outlook for the U.S. economy. Especially when you see Europe right now, right, Carl? Because so many countries in Europe did do at least partially the right thing, and France in particular just can't keep it under control right now. That's right, Vonnie. Also in the United States, we're seeing outbreaks in the heartland of America uh, at an accelerating pace. Uh, the issue is with the virus now and why this is different from what we saw last spring is last spring we closed the economy down and then we used the same power that we invoked to close it down to open it up again. Right now the virus is in charge and the virus shuts down the economy by infection. One worker missing from a factory, sick at a factory, closes an assembly line. If what that factory makes is used to make something else, say in the auto industry, one part for the assembly line missing shuts down the whole assembly line. 
And similarly, when students sick at a school closes a whole university or a whole school and keeps kids at home, or one office worker ill shuts down a whole office. Right now, the virus is in charge, and we don't know uh, how soon uh, this is going to be brought under control and what kind of uh, economic activity it's going to take out along the way. Just a quick update for people. COVID is in 46 states right now, detectably, and that we know of, and deaths around the world have topped 1 million. They're at 1.09 million. New York hotspots are leveling off, but Houston ICUs, intensive care units, are seeing a surge. Carl, let's talk about then what we do know. We got economic data this morning that showed initial jobless claims are just not getting any better, and that's pretty distorted data right now. And there's lots to not, not like out there, including the fact that stimulus talks are just going nowhere. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot not to like in this morning's employment claims number. Uh, claims are um, are not going down uh, as we'd like them to. And more importantly, the number of people who are on benefits are going down for the wrong reason, probably. People are exhausting the benefits that they have. They've lost federal support or they're going to lose federal support from any number of programs. And what this means is that the income hit that we've avoided so far has now started to catch up with us. And it probably started in July, but it's going to get a lot worse in the next month or two. Uh, The next retail sales number that we're going to see is probably not going to be too terrible. However, we're very grim about what's coming up in the months ahead as people lose their support for unemployment insurance and jobs do not materialize to put them back to work. I mean, we haven't even had a chance to talk to you recently about China, which was the only topic we were talking about for a long time. But China's really receded into the background now in terms of trade negotiations and so on, given what's actually happening right around us. What what do you think about at night, Carl, when you're thinking about the economy and, and the stock market close to highs and the election coming up and so on? What's the most important question for you right now? Funny, funny you should ask. I was just writing about China for our notes on the global economy tomorrow. China's going to print a GDP number next week that's going to show about 3.5% growth. That's not a particularly good number from a historical perspective, but from the perspective of the world at large, that's a pretty darn good result given what's going on with this pandemic in other countries. China right now is exploiting its advantage having dealt with the pandemic, albeit harshly from a, a, a social um, um, from a political pressure point of view, all right? But nonetheless, they contained it, and now they're using their windfall from having contained the virus to exploit openings in the world economy to step up to the plate, if you will, same relationships with Iran in defiance of U.S. sanctions, with relationships with Africa and other countries spreading aid and so forth. China is benefiting from this pandemic in multiple dimensions, and so far, for whatever reasons that uh, we may not approve of politically or socially, they're managing to keep the pandemic under control. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty malignant. How much hay can bad actors make from the situation that we're in right now, including the fact that we have an election coming up and, you know, that's what people are concentrating on. We just have a few seconds left, by the way, Carl. Well, I agree with you about that, Bonnie. The measures of the measures have been extreme. Then again, if you were living in China right now, your economy would be growing, you would have a job, you wouldn't be worried about losing it, and you wouldn't be worried about getting the, uh, the disease. Uh, you know, so there are obviously a lot of costs associated with this, but there also are some uh, true benefits as well.
Carl, as always, an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And Carl, again, we did get to talk a little bit about China, so that's good. Carl Weinberg of High Frequency Economics covering the gamut there from this morning's economic data to the stock market to what's happening in China. Speaking of the stock market, we're seeing just a little relief. The Dow down only, quote unquote, just more than half a percent right now, or 158 points. The S&P down 25 points, seven tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq down one percent. It probably bears repeating that we saw initial jobless claims for last week coming in today, higher than economists were anticipating, just below 900,000 claims. And we know that there are some problems with California data, which is skewing the data, continuing claims, staying over that one million mark. We do not like to see continuing claims staying over a million for many weeks in a row, but that's what we have. Next guest, Christian Magoon, CEO of Amplify ETFs, joins us. He's also portfolio of the Amplify online retail ETF, iBuy. And for anybody who's looking it up, it's I-B-U-I. And that is obviously something that uh, has been involved with Amazon and is involved with Amazon. So let's start off right there, Christian. We've just had Prime Days this year, an extra Prime Day. Amazon hasn't released a lot of data, but it definitely released third party or fulfillers data, which was higher. Talk to us about what you've seen. Yeah, so Prime Day concluded, and you know, once again, it was a record Prime Day. This was the sixth annual Amazon Prime Day. Last year, Amazon uh, found about a $7 billion uh, kind of sales um, uh, two-day two period. This year, um, early projections look like it's going to be closer to $10 billion, about $9.9 billion, with about $6 billion coming from U.S., versus about $4 billion coming from outside the U.S. The average order is up about $45 per order. The average household spend looks to be about $76. Um, 30% of customers surveyed by one data provider show that they're buying holiday gifts. Remember, Prime Day has traditionally been in July. This year it's in October. So um, Amazon's able to front run a little bit this holiday shopping trend in the age of COVID, which... Um, many people believe would make this the record prime day and sure enough it it looks like it's going to be a record by about 40 percent your iBuy etf generates what at least 70 percent of its revenue from online purchases in normal times what about right now during the pandemic what do you imagine that percentage is christian Yeah, it's definitely increased. So iBuy only looks at companies that have 70% or more of their revenue coming from online retail sales. And, you know, online retail still in the U.S. from a market share standpoint is only 16% of overall retail sales based off the last U.S. Census Bureau uh, report that happened uh, this past quarter. That's up from 11%. Now, during holiday shopping, we typically see, like last year, saw a little over 20% of market share going online. This year, early survey results show that it could be in excess of 50% market share. So it's a bang up year for online retail and online retail stocks. iBuy has gained 89% this year as as it's focused on online retail. Believe it or not, Amazon is only up 82%. So it's actually trailed the average online retail stock. iBuy is actually equally weighted. So it doesn't have this massive weighting to Amazon, which has actually benefited it this year. 
Absolutely. And you have $2 billion in assets across the suite of ETFs that Amplify. So that's really interesting. This is the particular one that you play probably most close attention to. I want to ask you a little bit about Colorado Springs, if I can. That's your location. I mean, is that an an area that's seen an influx of people during the coronavirus pandemic? Or just tell us a little bit about what it's like in Colorado Springs right now. Yeah, so we've definitely seen um, uh, people migrate down from the larger city in the state, Denver, to have a little bit more of quality of life in Colorado Springs. We've also seen an influx uh, of of Californians, frankly. In fact, uh, in the next uh, few months, we'll see the first opening of In-N-Out Burger, which, if you're from California, is kind of a staple uh, food there. So, um, yeah, Colorado is definitely attracting uh, people who now can work in a place that has some, you know, great um, uh, natural beauty, a lot of different activities all all, all year, four seasons. And um, we're definitely seeing a nice population increase, uh, probably due to not only COVID restrictions, but also kind of this work from home trend. So um, definitely uh, part of uh, maybe one of the areas that is a benefactor of, of kind of this changing landscape uh, in terms of kind of physical locating uh, yourself based off your work. Sure. I, I mean, I want to say congratulations, I guess, on In-N-Out Burger, but there's definitely a question mark at the end of that. Congratulations. Talk to us a little <laughs> bit about what the retail environment is like there, though, because you must see small businesses, medium-sized businesses in town and in surrounding towns. Are they suffering right now or, or you know, will they actually almost in some you know, weird way benefit from this, too? Yeah, so, you know, there is a larger population kind of trend happening in Colorado, so that is good. But to your point, there's still um, some physical restrictions here. We certainly have um, our mask mandate that just got extended by Governor Polis. Um, I know that many of the restaurants, particularly in the Denver area, are in limited capacity, about 25% capacity, which is, uh, you know, stressing uh, their ability to, you know, stay open. Um, And uh, overall, though, it seems like, you know, people are adjusting uh, and, you know, the economy has uh, slowed down in some areas. But, you know, speaking to a lot of uh, home improvement type businesses, whether that be uh, people uh, building decks or doing remodeling, et cetera, they're having record years. I just Mm. spoke to several uh, contractors um, who are seeing, you know, unbelievable backup. One, for example, who builds decks um, has now a five-month wait for all the new decks they're building out here in, in Colorado. Uh, their previous high was two two months, so um, they're operating at more than double their capacity. There's more work than they can handle. So I think a lot of the um, kind of Home Depot, um, you know, type retailers are doing quite well out here. Restaurants are are struggling, uh, but again, you know, we're hoping to get through this. And you know, restrictions have been a little bit more. Um, um, uh, less uh, intense, I guess, uh, yes. since the kind of the peak in Corona. But uh, definitely, uh, there's going to be some more uh, challenges to overcome here as we think we get into a cold winter. Well, Christian, congratulations on lots of things, honestly, but also on the performance of I Buy Your ETF. Christian Magoon, CEO of Amplify ETFs, joining us right there from beautiful Colorado Springs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.